Now I'd like to get, uh, have you get to know Amy just a little bit. So Amy's going to come. Amy is just a delightful young woman, woman as you're going to see. Amy just loves the Bible, and studying the Bible is such a joy for her. Amy is married to Pastor Ben, who serves our middle schoolers here at the North Campus. And she is mom to four handsome young men and one beautiful little girl. Uh, they are at home with their dad this morning. But I just want you to welcome Amy warmly. Would you? Amy Catterson. <laughs> so I would like to pray as we start. And I'm going to pray from Psalm 145. So. I will extol you, my God and my King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth, pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your work shall give thanks to you, O Lord and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Would you be with us now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. God is the God of the story and word. He sent out his line through the earth to be heard. Before time began, he foreknew his great plan, the glory of Christ and redemption of man. His kingdom established may feel upside down, but the God of the cross is the God of the crown. I'm so delighted to be with you this morning and to have some time with you to consider something more enduring, more creative, more life-transforming than anything else that we could put our attention to. Let me begin with a couple of verses from Matthew. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Matthew 13, 34, and 35. I start with those verses for two reasons. You heard the first from Pam. I am excited to join with you women in study of the parables of Jesus this summer. And I hope that this 
overview of God's kingdom plan might whet your appetite and inspire you to join us, which would be a joy. But second, more fundamentally, I want to consider that snapshot of Christ's ministry as a small picture of what brings us here this morning. We cherish many truths of who God is. Creator, provider, shepherd, king, redeemer, judge. But this morning, we have the joy of reflecting on God, the divine, self-revealing author. So the Bible is a big book, and it's actually made up of 66 smaller books composed by a few dozen human authors over a period of hundreds of years. But although we acknowledge the unique human authors and their specific context, the idea that we will primarily dwell on this morning is the one divine author, God himself, who breathed out this life-giving word. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, 2 Timothy 3.16. God, the master author, wrote the unifying story that runs through every page of scripture. And our goal today is to gain an eye for the storyline of scripture so that we understand the parts in light of the whole. My college degree was in English, so I love books and I love reading. And I think that a good story is not simply entertaining, but in some ways it actually may be transformative. You may be like me, and at the end of a long and wonderful book, you kind of grieve a little bit to say goodbye to those characters who have become like friends. So our capacity to create and understand stories is uniquely human. And I would argue that the reason we love stories, and actually the reason that we have the capacity to story, is that God himself has written, has crafted his own masterpiece, the story of redemption. And we reflect his image in our awareness of and enjoyment of stories. Probably it is not a surprise to you that the Bible contains stories. David and Goliath, Daniel and the lion's den, the good Samaritan. But this morning we're going to take a big step back to survey the one single storyline that encompasses the entirety of God's word and actually the whole scope of human history. We will seek to understand God's word more fully by taking a look at the big arc of his grand story through history. So let's consider the shape of a story. And if you look at the bottom of your page one of your handout, you can see a basic structure that shows us the flow of a story's plot. We have a few elements that are very basic to every good story. We have the exposition, where we learn about the setting and characters of the story and begin to understand 
some primary conflict that will move the plot forward. We have rising action, a series of events in the plot that build toward the climax. We have the climax, or the turning point of the story, where the highest point of tension is met and everything shifts. Then we have the falling action, or you could say denouement, the disentangling of the intricacies of the plot and movement toward resolution, where the pieces begin to fall into place. And then finally, we have the conclusion, the end of the story, where you see how everything is finally resolved. The plot arc is a tool that you can actually use to understand virtually any story within the Bible. It helps to draw our attention to the main points of a narrative text. But this morning, we're going to use it along with some other tools, some acronyms and actions and images to help clarify and remember the big story of the Bible. I want to begin by saying I am not an expert in the things that we'll look at this morning. I'm just a person like you. And I encourage you that if you have questions or if this piques some interest or curiosity in you, that you dig in deeper. Let me share a few resources that might be a good starting point. My first and biggest recommendation is to read through the whole Bible. I love the deep and slow study of scripture that we get in our women's Bible study. And I also commend to you the habit of taking in the whole counsel of scripture. You can do that a lot of different ways. Um, one plan that may help if you enjoy something that charts your path is the Bible reading challenge that Pastor Stephen Lee has um, shared with us in the past, and that'll take you through the whole Bible in a school year. So if that is of interest, you can look that up. Um, but I want to encourage you not to get hung up on a schedule, feeling like you've fallen behind and can't catch up, and to consider creative ways of enjoying God's Word. So I often listen to the Bible while I'm washing dishes or working in the kitchen, and just getting the whole storyline in, whatever the fashion will help us to see its big picture more fully. Second, the kingdom acronym and the events that we're going to look at this morning were developed by Dr. Jason DeRoshi. He was a professor at Bethlehem College and Seminary, and he was an elder here at the North Campus for many years before his family moved out of, um, out of the state. And he has generously made all of these resources available to us and many more at his website. So you'll see it printed at the bottom of the backside of your first page. It's just jasonderoshi.com. And if you search kingdom, you will find Bible reading plans and audio messages and many other resources that will help you dig in further. Finally, I have two books that I will commend to you. One um, written by J Jason DeRoshi is called What the Old Testament Authors Really Cared About. And this is a book that I heavily gleaned from in sharing um, the message for this morning. And it is fascinating. It has pictures and charts and graphs. It has an overview of each Old Testament book. 
and um, much insight that will help you to understand some of these books that may be less familiar. And a second book called Unfolding Grace is actually 40 unique scripture readings that take you from the beginning to the end of the story with a little bit of context bridging into each one. And so that is perhaps a more bite-sized way that you can look at the whole story of scripture and see its connecting pieces. So I hope that our time together this morning will allow us to be more faithful and more perceptive students of God's word, to love and worship him more fully as we read each passage of scripture with a clear idea of how it relates to the whole. When we come to the Bible, trying to understand its main message or storyline, we may be helped to note some scripture passages that actually synthesize the Bible's big point for us. So let's consider two examples. Luke 24, 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. John 5, 46. For if you believed Moses... You would believe me, Jesus, for he wrote of me. So what would be a takeaway from those verses as far as what is central in the Bible story? This is for audience participation. <laughs> what do we hear central to God's message in Scripture? Nice and loud. Jesus, that's right. This is available to us. You can access this. We understand that Christ, God's own son, who came to redeem people from sin and make them a part of God's kingdom. That's not just a little piece of the pie of scripture, but rather he is the centerpiece of the entire message of the Bible. To provide a little more clarity and definition to this story, we are going to walk very quickly through the entire scope of Scripture to see how each major segment of the Bible relates to this central message. Along the way, we're going to use a basic acronym to describe the big story of the Bible. So you'll see that on the first page of your handout with the heading, God's Kingdom Plan in Scripture. So right here on the front. Most of our remaining time will be spent walking through the kingdom acronym and filling in a few more details about the beautiful way that God has woven the story of the ages. My goal is that by the time we end today, you will know and be able to remember the elements of this kingdom acronym as well as the major events for each period. So we're going to spend a lot of time reviewing that. I hope to go over it over and over. So just to get oriented, let's notice a few initial things within this chart. First, I want to point out that the seven different periods in this kingdom acronym are eras of history unfolding in chronological order. So if we wanted to draw it out on a timeline instead of a plot line, we could. Some of the periods have a clearly defined time frame so that we know the years that it began and ended. 
and some we don't know with that level of specificity. But regardless, this is a chronological look at the whole story of the Bible. And when we think about how the different books of the Bible fit into this paradigm, it's going to be helpful for us to identify how that book of the Bible fits historically in among the events of these periods. Interestingly enough, our Bible does not arrange its books chronologically, nor is it arranged in the same order of the books as they were arranged in Jesus' day. So a tool like this kingdom paradigm is very helpful to provide some historical context for each part of the story. Next, you'll see that there are five periods or eras that are covered through the Old Testament books of the Bible. It starts with K, kickoff and rebellion. I, instrument of blessing. N, nation redeemed and commissioned. G, government in the land. And D, dispersion and return. These provide a foundation for God's redemptive plan. They are setting the stage, providing context, and are rich with promises and foreshadows of God's coming Messiah. On the plot arc, these are the books that give us the exposition and rising action of God's great story. Next, you'll notice that there are two periods of time covered in the New Testament books of the Bible. O, overlap of the ages, and M, mission accomplished. Where the Old Testament sets the stage or the foundation for God's redemptive plan, the New Testament reveals the fulfillment of God's plan. The Old Testament is rich with shadows, and here in the New Testament, we see the substance or fulfillment who is Christ. Colossians 2.17, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The idea of fulfillment is like a completion or a total realization of something that God said would happen. And these two final periods are where we read the climax, falling action, and conclusion of God's story. So as we talk through each of these periods, we'll also look to locate ourselves in this scope of history. Today, we can look back upon so many significant periods of redemptive history, but we're also looking forward to the final fulfillment of God's plan. So that was our first run-through of the kingdom acronym. But I'm hoping by the end that we're going to do it seven times. So you're going to be really solid on each piece. Now, before we take a closer look, I have a little interactive exercise for you. So here we go. I'd like you to take a stab at putting together a super short description of what the Bible's big story is, like a sentence or less. You can think about those verses that we referenced earlier about uh, Christ and what you already know about the Bible. And you can work on this alone or you can partner up with one or two people who are near you and that would be excellent. This is no pressure. No one will be compelled to share <laughs> who does not want to. But I'm going to go ahead and give you five minutes now to come up with your super short description of the Bible's big story. I love to hear your conversation. But I'm wondering 
Is there anyone who would like to share what you came up with? I heard some answers already, so I know that you are on an excellent trajectory. Yeah, good. That's right. Yeah. Very sweet. So I don't know if you could hear it in the far corners, but to the short version is that the Bible is God's redemption story of how he would redeem a people for himself. It's his rescue plan. That's good. Anyone else want to share your summary of God's big story? Perfect. Thank you for sharing that. Well, if you would like a one-sentence summary of the Bible's message from Dr. DeRoshi, here it is. God reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ. God reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ. Or if you want an even shorter, punchier phrase from Dr. Deroshi, we could say that the Bible story is the story of God's glory in Christ. So wonderful to hear those echoes and reflections already coming from your hearts. We can probably go home now, but <laughs> since we have a little more time, let's next take a little slower walk through the kingdom acronym. And this time, I'm going to share a motion for each letter as we review it. This is a time for full audience participation. <laughs> My memory is not very sharp, and so I find that using hand motions helps things stick so much better, so I hope that you will learn and practice these with me. Um, you'll also find, if you would like to refresh your memory sometime after the seminar that there is just a brief three-minute video that is posted under the video section on the Bethlehem North Women's Facebook page. So you're welcome to tap Pam or Beth about accessing that if you need to, but just know that should this begin to fade in the future, you can always refresh it there. And I will confess, I had to go back and watch the video before I <laughs> prepared for this this time. Okay, let's begin with K. K is for kickoff and rebellion. And for kickoff, I'm gonna make the sign language letter K. You stick your forefinger out and your middle finger at half mast and then you put your thumb resting right between them. So kickoff and then for rebellion, thumbs down. Kickoff and rebellion. Next is instrument of blessing. For instrument of blessing, we do sign language letter I, which you just extend your pinky. And then for blessing, we'll lift it up in the air like it's a light on a hill. Next is N for nation redeemed and commissioned. The sign language for N is your thumb tucked between your middle finger and your ring finger. So it's right in the middle, two, two fingers on each side. N, nation, redeemed and commissioned. So we'll start as though we're in bondage and then like someone breaking free, our arms are swinging out for redeemed and commissioned. Next is G for government in the land. So the sign language letter G you look as though you're showing something very small with your thumb and forefinger and then turn it sideways. 
G, government in the land, and then both hands putting a crown on your head, like the kings of Israel and Judah. So government in the land. Next is D for dispersion and return. To make the sign language letter D, you'll point your forefinger upwards and make a circle with the rest of your fingers. So dispersion and return. And then we'll point over the shoulder and back forward again. So D is for dispersion and return. And those are the five periods in the Old Testament. Next O is for overlap of the ages. And sign language letter O just makes a circle with all your fingers. And then we're just going to do that with both hands, like we're telescoping them. Because this is where Christ came and brought the end of the beginning and the beginning of the end. And finally, M is for mission accomplished. And sign language for the letter M, you tuck your finger, your thumb between your ring finger and your pinky. So M for mission accomplished, and then two thumbs up. All right, let's do that all again. So we have K for kickoff and rebellion. I, instrument of blessing. N for nation redeemed and commissioned. G for government in the land. D, dispersion and return. O, overlap of the ages. And M, mission accomplished. Wonderful. So that's the skeleton or framework of all that we're going to talk about the rest of the morning. But it's time to start filling in the picture a little bit. So the next element that I'd like to introduce are the basic historical events or markers of each of the kingdom periods. These help us when we come to a passage of scripture in the Bible and we want to identify where it fits in that big time frame. I will also share the dates for each range if they are known. And I'll mention where some of the books of the Bible fall within each period. And I drew those dates from Dr. Deroshi's book, What the Old Testament Authors Really Care About. In your own study, you'll find resources like the introduction in a study Bible that helps to lay out context for that specific book can be really fruitful and useful in identifying the timing of the book and how it fits in context. But I hope that as we learn the basic timeline of scripture, we'll have a solid foundation for further study. The second sheet of your handout lists out the Old Testament books of the Bible, and then on the reverse side, the New Testament books. And that's just available to you as a resource if you would like to take notes within your own Bible study time or as we discuss things here, you're welcome to. And the way that the Old Testament books are listed are actually the way they appeared in the Hebrew Bible, ordered by the portions of law and prophets and writings. So let's begin again back at K. Kickoff and rebellion. And the time is not specifically known for this period. Three primary events within this period are creation. And for creation, we're going to make a big arch over our head like this. So creation, then fall, fall of man into sin, and flood, with your hands drifting up like the waters are rising. 
So we have creation, fall, and flood. When we think about the Bible's story of origins and the explanation for the world as it is today, this period provides some amazing context and clarity for all that we see. God's glory is on display as we see his handiwork in creation demonstrating awesome elements of his character. In addition, when Adam and Eve disobey in the Garden of Eden by eating the fruit that God had commanded them not to eat, God's holiness and his faithfulness are demonstrated as God does what he said to them that he would do with they disregarded his word. But even here, God's mercy triumphs. And he gives a promise about a son of Eve who will one day restore what sin had broken. Genesis gives us the explanation of these main events for the kickoff and rebellion. So now, I want you to turn to a neighbor and review the motions for kickoff and rebellion and these three events. Creation, fall, and flood. Go for it. Okay, very good. You thought maybe this would be kind of a relaxing seminar. You could just sit back, but no. We're, we're going to keep you involved. Okay, our next period is I, instrument of blessing. And the dates for this period are circa 2100 to 1850 B.C. The primary event here is patriarchs. So for patriarchs, we're going to put a thumb to the forehead, and this is a sign language for father. Who were the patriarchs? So Genesis goes on to tell about God's choosing one man, Abraham, out of a pagan nation and giving him great promises of blessing to spread through him to the whole world. And we see that Abraham believed God's promises, and that was counted to him as righteousness. Genesis 15, 6, and he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. We're going to look at more details about those promises in our next segment. But the promises given to Abraham were passed down through his family, from Abraham to his son Isaac, and then to Isaac's son Jacob, and then to Jacob's 12 sons. These men are called patriarchs because they were the forefathers of the whole nation of Israel. It is very clear, though, as we read through the stories about these men, that they were not the hero promised by God to rescue the world from sin. These men and their families are very flawed. But the greatness and glory of God is put on display as he shows his covenant faithfulness from generation to generation. Okay, please turn to your neighbor, and we will review the motions for Instrument of Blessing and Patriarch. All right, very good. So moving on, we are at N, Nation Redeemed and Commissioned, circa 1450 to 1400 B.C. The end of the period of the patriarchs finds them far from their homeland, taking refuge in the country of Egypt during a prolonged famine. 
But in the 400 years that intervene between the end of Genesis and the beginning of action in Exodus, a major change has taken place. The Israelites have ceased to be honored guests in the country of Egypt. They're no longer hosted and protected and provided for. Rather, as different pharaohs have come to power, the Israelites have become a nation enslaved and exploited in a foreign land. That sets the stage for God's awesome work of redemption. So if you were a part of our women's Bible study this past year as we walked through the book of Exodus, this part of the story will be especially dear. Through God's chosen servant Moses, God brings the Pharaoh and mighty nation of Egypt to its knees through ten great plagues. At the climax of the story, God demonstrates the difference between his people, the ones who trust him, and put the blood of a spotless lamb over the door of their house, and those who ignore his warning and are visited by the angel of death and lose their firstborn sons. And at last, Pharaoh sends the people of Israel out of the land. That brings us to our next major event, the Exodus. So we're going to do it like there. the waters are parting. God brings his people out of Egypt with a strong arm and outstretched hand. But Pharaoh subsequently regrets his decision and starts to pursue the Israelites, pinning them against the Red Sea. They are in an impossible place. Army behind them, sea in front of them. And God shows his power his faithfulness, and his glory by making a way through the water and then sending it crashing down on the heads of their enemies. Then we come to our next major event, Sinai. So we're going to make our hands like a mountain. As at Mount Sinai, Yahweh, the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God, meets with his people. And there, he gave them a great gift, his law, that provided instructions for the tabernacle and a system of atonement so that they could draw near to him, as well as a standard of obedience and love, which would set them apart from all the other nations as a people who belong to the one true God. The second part of Exodus, as well as Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, provide much of the detail of this law, as well as the response of the nation. Although God continually provided for his people and led them like a shepherd, the majority of the people of Israel were stubborn, rebellious, and unbelieving. Deuteronomy 9.7 From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Even when God brought them to the land he had promised to give them, the people rebelled in unbelief and thought that the people of the land were bigger and stronger than the almighty God who was with them. Deuteronomy 9:23. When the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and take possession of the land that I have given you, 
Then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God and did not believe him or obey his voice. And so they remained in our next major event, wilderness. We're just going to loop, (laughs) as they did. So for 40 more years, they were to wander in the wilderness because of their failure to trust that God would do what he said he would do. So let's turn to your neighbor now and review the hand motions for nation redeemed and commissioned and these events, Exodus, Sinai, and wilderness. Okay, I love it. We'll keep moving on. G, government in the land. This era is from circa 1400 to 600 BC. For the glory of his name, God remained perfectly faithful to his promises. And after those years of wandering in the wilderness were over, he brought the Israelites into the promised land and began establishing them there. Joshua was God's appointed leader to bring the people into the land, and it is the book of Joshua that describes the beginning of our next major event, conquest. So we're going to cross our arms like this for conquest. God shows his glory as he delivers the enemies in the land into the Israelites' hands, and he is put on display as the only true God Even a Canaanite, uh, Rahab, says, Yahweh, the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Joshua 2, 11. But the people are not faithful to fully obey all the words of God, and they fail to fully remove the pagan peoples that God commanded. Instead, they go after the gods of the people who are around them. So the process of conquest is incremental and incomplete. Some tribes take possession of their portion of the land, but some only partially. We hear about the unfolding struggle between the tribes and the surrounding nations in the book of Judges, as repeatedly the people fall into idolatry and sin, and they're given over to the hands of their enemies. They cry out to God, and by his mercy, God grants them a judge to help deliver them. And there's a season of peace in which the Lord gives them rest in the land. But inevitably, they soon turn back to idolatry and unbelief, as everyone does what is right in his own eyes. And the cycle repeats again and again. The beautiful book of Ruth is set during this bleak period of time. A turning point comes at the time of Samuel, the final judge of this era, when the people begin to demand that God give them a king to rule over them so that they can be like the other people and nations around them. Despite warnings of what would come with the ruling of a king, God grants their request, and we come to our next major event, the kingdoms. So we're going to have two hands holding scepters. Kingdoms. The first king anointed is Saul. And our book of 1 Samuel tells the story of his reign 
and his failure to obey God, and ultimately God's decision to remove the kingdom from him and to give it to a man who would be after his heart. The next anointed king is David, and God renews his promise to David of a coming royal redeemer whose throne will have no end. 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. We read of David's reign in our book of 2 Samuel. But David's own sin and deceit make it clear that he is not the promised one. His household is full of conflict and deception, anger and revenge. God faithfully keeps his promise and brings David's son Solomon as the next king. And he is a man of wisdom and peace who brings the nation of Israel to a substantial measure of peace and security. Substantial portions of the Old Testament genre of writings are attributed to David and Solomon, such as Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Songs, and Ecclesiastes. And these books cast a vision for how those who hope in the Lord will live and enjoy their covenant relationship with him. But Solomon's heart, too, is drawn away by foreign gods. And when the throne passes to his son, Rehoboam, Poor judgment and rebellion against God result in the breach of the kingdom, and they split. The two southern tribes remain loyal to the house of David, and they are called the southern kingdom, or Judah. The ten northern tribes, also called Israel or Samaria, align with a series of idolatrous and wicked kings. And the troubled times in both these kingdoms enfold in our books of first and second kings. Throughout the time of the kingdoms, God graciously sends prophets to warn the rebellious people about the consequences of their sin and to call them back to him. The prophets give commentary on the hearts of the people and God's disposition toward them. The prophetic books written within this period include Isaiah, part of Jeremiah, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. Some of these are directed to the people of Israel in the northern kingdom and some to the people of Judah in the southern kingdom. But in the end, God's people demonstrate repeatedly that the sin sickness of their hearts runs so deep that nothing less than an inside-out transformation could rescue them from it. And just as God promised, the consequence of their sustained rebellion, idolatry, and unbelief is to be defeated by their enemies and cast out of the land. Okay, please turn to your neighbor and review the motions for government in the land and the events of conquest and kingdom. Very good. We move on to D, 
dispersion, and return. This era covers circa 600 to 400 BC. The faithful God, Yahweh, who had brought Israel into the promised land, now fulfilled his promise to remove them from the land if they turned away from him. The exile of God's people happened as the northern people, the northern kingdom of Israel was taken into Israel, into exile by the Assyrians in 722 BC, and the southern kingdom of Judah was defeated and taken into captivity by the Babylonians in several waves, climaxing in the destruction of the temple in 586 BC. 2 Kings 17, 7 and following. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants the prophets. But they would not listen. That brings us to the next major event of this period. Exile. We're doing thumb over the shoulder because the people are taken away from their land. These were bleak and grievous days when God's people were far from the home that God had given them and the temple where they had been invited to come into the presence in worship and joy of the Lord was in ruins. And yet the Lord continues to show his power, his covenant faithfulness, and his eternal purposes by preserving a remnant of faithful people, even in exile in a foreign land. We've been reading through the time of exile in our sermon series through the book of Daniel. And you'll remember that Daniel prays to God for deliverance and restoration, not because of any merit within God's people, but because of his great mercy for his own sake, because his city and his people are called by his name, Daniel 9, 18 and 19. God also continues faithfully warning and admonishing his people and also sending prophetic encouragement to his people that he has not forgotten them or forsaken them forever through the prophetic books of Ezekiel, Obadiah, Haggai, and Zechariah. Also the book of Lamentations, calls God's people to hope in Yahweh, even in the bleakest and most painful circumstances, because his steadfast love never ceases, and his mercies never come to an end. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. Also in this period, God preserves his people from a potential annihilation during exile through the providential influence of Esther. And he indeed brings the promised 70-year exile, which was foretold in Jeremiah 25.12, to an end. As the Persian king of Cyrus gives a decree that the people could return to their land. And that brings us to our next event, initial restoration. 
So we have hands, we're stacking imaginary blocks as they did in the land. Through God's sovereign care and covenant faithfulness, he brings a remnant of the Jews back to their homeland. We read of the rebuilding of the temple in the book of Ezra and the rebuilding of the walls around Jerusalem in Nehemiah. Malachi offers prophetic rebuke and promise to the returned exiles. And our books of First and Second Chronicles describe the history of the kingdoms of Israel with a sweeping view, all the way from Adam to David and then to the restoration after exile, with a lens that would encourage those who are returning from exile to recognize the faithfulness of God and to humble themselves before him in faith and obedience. And so the Old Testament story concludes. And a long period passes, often referred to as 400 years of silence, without divine revelation that's recorded in scripture. So let's turn to your neighbor and review the motions for dispersion and return and the events of exile and initial restoration. Okay, so we come to O, overlap of the ages, beginning in circa 4 BC and continuing to an unknown time. When we move from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we observe a great paradigm shift that we've already mentioned briefly. While the Old Testament foreshadows predicts and points to a great savior, messiah, and king who would come, the New Testament reveals the great fulfillment of God's promises in Christ. Jesus Christ is the fulcrum on which the whole story of scripture turns. So our next great event is Christ's work. We're just going to make a cross and lift it up. Jesus came in a quiet and unexpected way for his first coming as a suffering servant who lived in flawless communion with the Father, fulfilling the whole law and then offering himself as the perfect sacrifice for sins, the only payment which could fully satisfy the righteous requirements of God's justice. Romans 3, 23 through 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. For those who receive Christ through faith, a great exchange occurs. Christ's death pays for our record of sin. And Christ's perfect righteousness is credited to our account. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, 
He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, provide the narrative account of Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection. And Christ's work creates and sustains the next major mile marker in this period, the church age. So we're going to make a big circle with your arms like you're drawing all the peoples into one body. We read of God's establishing the church and sending his Holy Spirit to fill his people in the book of Acts. And we see the unfolding implications of the gospel for the way the church is to manifest God's kingdom through most of the other books of the New Testament. As we are looking to find ourselves in redemptive history, here we are. We are the redeemed people of God brought together as Christ's body, the church, and commissioned to make disciples of all nations, as Matthew 28, 18 through 20 tells. The reason we call this period overlap of the ages relates to the way that Christ brings God's kingdom to earth in this period. Another way to describe it is already, but not yet. Already, we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But we have not yet received our inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Already, Christ has come and fulfilled the law, gloriously providing redemption that was hinted at and foreshadowed in the system of sacrifices from the Mosaic Covenant. But not yet has he triumphantly returned as the promised Messiah King who will establish his eternal throne and a peace that will never end as Isaiah 9-7 describes. Already, we are filled with God's Holy Spirit and enabled to live in real righteousness by the grace and power of Christ. But not yet do we enjoy the full freedom from sin in our flesh, as we read in Romans 8, 4, and 23. When Christ came, he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom because he, the promised king, had come and was establishing his reign in the hearts of all those who would receive him by faith. And after rising from the dead, he declared to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Matthew 28, 18. The king has been given all authority. But in God's kindness, he has also made this a season of patience and invitation in which the gospel is to be shared with all nations and any who will receive it may be welcomed into the kingdom of the beloved son. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some 
count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Okay, let's turn to your neighbor and review the motions for overlap of the ages and Christ's work in the church age. Okay, final section. M for mission accomplished. Circa someday and reaching through eternity. This brings us to the final period as we await the concluding events of this timeline. Christ's return. So we have our hands coming down as he will one day. And kingdom consummation when the king will be seen. Most of the New Testament points forward to this final fulfillment of all God's promises, but especially the book of Revelation, where we hear about the day when God will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither there shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Revelation 21, 3 and 4. When Christ returns, it will be as the ruling and reigning king, and every knee will bow of those who are in heaven or on earth or under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 10 and 11. As we look forward to that day, we can cry together with the author of Revelation, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Revelation twenty two twenty. 20. All right, so turn to your neighbor and review our motions for mission accomplished and the events of Christ's return and kingdom consummation. So we have officially surveyed the entire scope of scripture and the beautiful story of the Bible. So thanks for hanging with me for that. Let's walk through kingdom again and the main events. So we're going to do the hand motions for each of the periods and for the main events that fall within them. You might dream about these tonight because we're hitting them very frequently, but that Repetition helps it stick. So here we go. We have kickoff and rebellion. Creation, fall, and flood. Instrument of blessing and the patriarchs. Nation redeemed and commissioned. Exodus, Sinai, and wilderness. Government in the land, conquest, and kingdoms. Dispersion and return. Exile and initial restoration. Overlap of the ages. Christ's work and the church age. Mission accomplished. Christ's return, and kingdom consummation. 
To add one more layer to our picture of the Bible's big story, we will now look at some very simple images that help to communicate some ideas of foreshadowing and fulfillment that repeatedly appear in the Bible. So I want to encourage you, if this is somewhat new content, do not feel overwhelmed. What we have covered with the kingdom paradigm and those major events are the takeaway that I hope you will feel confident of. We're going to look now at some repeated themes and images that would take a lifetime to master. So you have resources and can refer back to them later. So don't feel pressure that these are things you should be able to master in one sitting. No one masters God's word. It masters us. And we spend our life feeding on it and letting that revelation shape our hearts and minds in Jesus. So as we begin, I'd like you to look at your handout with the header of the story of God's glory in Christ. So it's the back of your first page. We see the kingdom acronym spelled across the top with a series of pictures under each initial. So I'm going to give you five minutes now to make some personal observations of these pictures. Do you see a picture appearing more than once in the different periods? Do you notice any subtle differences? Can you make any guesses about what might be depicted in these icons? So you're welcome to cluster up a little bit and talk with someone sitting nearby and jot down questions or ideas that you observe together. And I will call us back in five minutes. Okay, this is really sweet to hear all the ideas you're sharing together. This morning, we have made already a brief or overview of the story and timeline of the Bible. But the Bible is not just a really big story. It's also a masterful story. It is the most amazing and awe-inspiring story of all. Even though it was written over the period of a couple thousand years by multiple human authors, it is a story that describes the creative and sovereign design of a single divine author. As we all know, a truly well-written story does not simply move from point A to point B. It is a tapestry of themes, characters, and meaning with unfolding purpose and climax and resolution. So let's take a look at some themes and images that appear repeatedly through the big story of the Bible and help to shape our understanding of the big ideas that God communicates. There's nothing magical or comprehensive about the particular grid of images that we're looking at today. It's helpful, but you may come up with different or more themes in your own study of the Bible. So let's take another walk through the kingdom periods, looking at some of these 
themes and images. So we have K, kickoff and rebellion. And let's take a look at the images here. First, we have a tree. And you'll notice the key identifies that as paradise enjoyed. So where do we see paradise in this period of the Bible? Yeah, the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve communed with the Lord and had his companionship in a beautiful home untouched by sin. The next icon is the eaten apple, and that is described as fall, sin, and rebellion. You'll remember that's one of our primary events during the kickoff, the fall where Adam and Eve sinned and disobeyed God's instruction. And the third image depicts exile, paradise lost. So what happens during this period that shows that? Yeah, they were removed from the garden because of their sin. God drove Adam and Eve out of that beautiful sanctuary. Finally, we see the image of waters of judgment. What happened to show that? Yeah, the flood. God's great flood was sent to destroy all the flesh that had the breath of life under heaven. But what do you notice about that little image? Does it display only judgment? There's also a tiny little ark where God safely brought this tiny remnant through the waters of judgment of those who believed and obeyed his word. Good. So next, instrument of blessing. In this period, God creates a special people to be set apart for himself. We can see that reflected in the first image for the patriarchs. Despite the brokenness that entered the world because of Adam and Eve's sin, now God intervenes to begin a process of redemption and restoration. Those next three images depict the three big promises that God gives to Abraham and his offspring. So why do you think that those icons are only outlined in a dotted line? Can you guess? not fulfilled, right? These are promises given, but not yet fulfilled. The promises were, one, much offspring, two, land, home, rest, and three, blessing to all nations. Did God answer any of those promises during this period? Not really. Even from this early time, God was prizing faith, walking without sight in his people. So then we move on to N, nation redeemed and commissioned. Geographically, do you remember where does the action begin for this period? Where were God's people? In Egypt, right. And how did they get there? Can anyone recap what happened to God's chosen family? Yep, okay, so Jacob's family went to Egypt because of a famine. They have been, they're multiplied into a great nation, and hostile pharaohs have enslaved them. So in the first image here, 
what do we see repeated with an initial fulfillment of one of God's promises? Yeah, right. God has multiplied them to be a huge nation. Even in hard circumstances, God is showing his covenant faithfulness. Look at the next image. Does that remind you of something we've seen before? And I know some at least noticed this. What does that icon image in some way? The waters of judgment. But what is different about this occurrence of that icon? It's split. That's right, because God made a way for his people to come through that judgment untouched. But the waters swept away the enemies of God and destroyed them. Now, do you think that God's people were rescued because they were super lots better than the Egyptians? No. <laughs> no, they're not. The next image shows us giving of the law at Mount Sinai. This is another aspect of God setting apart the people of Israel to be his people, unlike the other nations around them. Then we come to an image that shows penal substitutionary atonement. And when you looked at that picture, I'm sure that is exactly what you thought of when you saw that little lamb. <laughs> so what is penal substitutionary atonement? Let's try to break that down a little bit. The word penal means punishment. When somebody does wrong, this is the penalty. So you can hear the related word there. And what about substitutionary? What does that evoke? There's a substitute. There's an exchange. The idea of the penalty due is falling on someone else. And what about the idea of atonement? That has the sense of making wrong right. So if you put that all together, we see that God gave his people a preview of how sins could be made right. What do you think that was in that period of time? What kind of sacrifice was required for sins? Yeah, blood of a perfect spotless lamb. Because God is just, sin earned the penalty of death. And because God is not anything like us, he designed a way that there could be a substitute, a great exchange that would allow our sin to be made right. But what is the final image of this period? Again, fall, sin, rebellion. Do you remember a way that that was expressed during this time frame? So there's the golden calf, absolutely. God brought his people right to the edge of the promised land, and they refused to trust and obey God to enter it. And so they had to wander for 40 more years. Good. Next we come to government in the land. What is our first image for this period? Yeah, conquest, kingdom established. In what way do we see that happening during government in the land? 
kings, yep, kings are established. The people of Israel come into the promised land and they are uh, granted the ability to drive out enemies before them. Now we see the repetition of an image that we saw earlier. What is that? The tree. Paradise and joy. So in what way during government in the land, was there a sense of paradise enjoyed again? Yeah, they, had, they were settled. They were given lands and homes that were not earned by their hard work. God granted it to them. And God's people were given a way to draw near to God in the temple. What's the next icon that we see in that? Time period. It's a fulfillment of another one of the promises God gave to Abraham for land, home, and rest. So in this time frame, we see a large measure of security came to God's people during the reigns of King David and King Solomon. God's people were there. They were in the land that God had promised them, and they do gain a measure of rest from the enemies of the nations around them. But what is the final icon that we see again? <laughs> Fall, sin, and rebellion. And how do we see that expressed during the government in the land at the end of that era? Idolatry, evil kings, Every single king has weaknesses and failures and defeats. The people of Israel turn away from God and ultimately give their hearts over to the idols of the nations around them. And the division of the kingdom and the refusal of God's people to listen to the warnings and words of God's prophet show that their hearts are rebellious and sinful. So that brings us to D, dispersion and return. And we see another familiar image. Exile. Paradise lost. So how did we see that expressed in this period? Yeah, they're taken captive. They're sent away from their promised land, the northern tribes to the Assyrians, the southern to Babylon. God was removing them from that promised land because of their rebellion and sin. Now, if this was a story written by us, I think this would probably just be the end. Enough. Do you think that God has given his people enough second chances and third chances and fourth chances? Has he been faithful? Yes. But because this is a story written by Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, it's not the end. The next picture reflects another promise restored for land, home, and rest. How is that expressed in this period? Yeah, people are granted the ability to come back to the land to rebuild the temple and the walls of Jerusalem. God preserved them because of his plan, which was not yet finished. 
And yet, we see what is the final image in this period. Yet again, fall and sin and rebellion. We see that even after God brings his people back, after the initial restoration, the people themselves need to be restored. They are still rebellious, still failing to heed the words of the prophets about turning fully back to the Lord to follow him with their whole hearts. And that brings us to overlap of the ages. So what do you observe about this first image in overlap of the ages? Christ. We see the cross of Christ overlaid with this picture of penal substitutionary atonement. The picture of Christ dying on the cross as a payment for our sins. If you wanted to look back at our story chart, that highest point of tension or the turning point of the story is called the climax. And as I look at the big story of the Bible, this is where I would identify that climax. This is the decisive moment where the whole story turns. It is not only the fulfilling of promising, it exposes and reveals what the heart of the problem was all along. So if you are looking at a story and you can pick out what that climax is, what that turning point is, you also can trace from that what was actually the conflict? What was the big problem that needed to be resolved within the story? So I'd like to pause here and ask you to do a brief exercise. On your own or with someone nearby, let's take a stab at identifying what was the main conflict or problem in the story of the Bible and how does Christ become the solution in a way that shows God's glory so dramatically. So you can use some of the images from this grid, or you can come up with your own words or images, whatever helps you to see that connection between the world's big problem and Jesus' big rescue. So I'm going to give you a couple minutes. Okay. Let's, let's consider this together. Would anybody like to share your, your thought at the biggest conflict in God's story, the biggest problem, and the way Christ becomes the solution? We were a mess and we couldn't fix it. If there is a theme that we can put our finger on through these different periods over and over again, that is it. God's people have a problem that they cannot fix. We are unable to just work harder to be better. We can't. 
And how does Christ do what was so impossible for us? He pays the penalty. A perfect substitute with a perfect payment. It staggers the mind. But that is the beautiful exchange, the beautiful turning point that no human author could have possibly dreamed up. But God himself wrote into his story of redemption. And if you don't walk away with anything but that, you have gotten the main point of God's story. But let's look at the remaining images for this period. After that image for the saving and atoning work of Christ, what does the next picture display? We see conquest and kingdom established. In what way was that accomplished in this period? Good. Yeah. So we see Jesus comes bringing salvation first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. And when Christ comes, he declares the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king is here. And he defeated his enemies at the cross and established his kingdom in the hearts of his people. There is more to come, but we see that beginning to be established. And what about the next image? This is exactly what we were hearing about next. Blessing to all nations. So... Back at Abraham, back during the time of the patriarchs, there was a promise of many offspring. How do we see that being fulfilled at this time? I hear little whispers. Through the Gentiles, too. So God has exploded out his purpose of salvation and redemption, not from just the line, the bloodline of Abraham and those who are of Jewish descent, but he invites in all those who trust in Christ as children of promise. So little by little, the work of Christ is bringing into reality the things that were hints and foreshadows and promises of Abraham in the past. We move to M, mission accomplished. And finally, we look at the great conclusion of God's story. This final period provides true fulfillment and resolution of everything that we have been looking at as a promise or hope before. So just to quickly touch on each of the images here, we see 
conquest and kingdom established. We see fires of judgment. And I just want to consider that for a moment with you. For those who are not a part of God's kingdom, God has appointed a perfect and fitting judgment in the eternal fires of hell. In our present culture, the idea of judgment may feel jarring or perhaps even overly harsh. But the reality is that as humans, we long for justice to be expressed. We know instinctively that evil can't just go unanswered. Wrongs should be set right. And God, the perfect judge, will enact perfect justice for sins not already paid for by Christ. That third icon, we see blessing to all nations. Fourth, much offspring. Fifth, paradise enjoyed. And finally, land, home, and rest. So I would like to invite you to spend a couple minutes with the people near you to consider a scripture verse that might point to or expand these promises fulfillment. So I'm going to kind of section out the room into these different segments. On the far left, I'm going to have you take conquest and kingdom established, then this Second tier, I'm going to have you look at the fires of judgment and God's perfect justice. Then here we'll have blessing to all nations with this set of tables. Here in the center, much offspring. How do we see much offspring as a promise that will be fulfilled? This set, paradise enjoyed, and then to the far right here, or your left, land, home, and rest. So you probably will find something related to these ideas if you look in the final three chapters of the Bible. But you can look anywhere. But if you're stuck, I point you to Revelation 20, 21, and 22. And we'll come back together in just a minute. Okay. We'll draw us back together because we're in our last few minutes together this morning. If you have a verse that you would be willing to read? Would you just raise your hand up high so I can see where you are? We'll just do one per section if there's someone who'd like to share. Okay, perfect. So we are going to hear, just right in a row, we're just going to hear six of these verses that relate to God's filling up the amazing promises he has for us. So go ahead and begin us right here. And if you would stand up and just so it's a little easier to project, that would be helpful. Okay, that was John 3.16. Revelation 7.9. See, Revelation 22.3 and 4. And finally, yeah, God himself will be with them as their God. Doesn't this just show us that Disney did not create the idea of happily ever after. <laughs> Fairy tales are a whisper of this beautiful truth that springs from the heart of God. 
the promise of true, eternal joy purchased for us by Christ to the great glory of God. So we will close with one final pass through the kingdom paradigm, and then I'll pray. You ready? Kickoff and rebellion. Creation, fall, flood. Instrument of blessing, patriarchs. Nation, redeemed and commissioned. Exodus, Sinai, wilderness. Government in the land, conquest, kingdoms. Dispersion and return, exile, initial restoration. Overlap of the ages. Christ's work, church age, mission accomplished, Christ's return, kingdom consummation. Oh, Father, we thank you that you are the great author, not of a great book only, but of the entire history of redemption that you have planted us in the midst of. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for making the perfect answer to our terrible trouble and for promises of hope forever if we look to Christ and receive your gift of salvation. Would you bless each one of these women and would you draw our hearts to greater worship as we see your big story of redemption. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much.